before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 13. As always, uh, joined the three amigos. We've got uh, Portugal's number one farmer, Rich Diaz, head of Acorn Macro Research. And of course, uh, Keith Dicker, everyone's favorite boomer with ice cap asset management, wearing the Patagucci jacket uh, this fine morning. So uh, welcome back to the show, gents. Uh, quick... Uh, a little bit of housekeeping. <clears throat> You'll have to forgive me. We're actually, this is actually a, a second recording. I dropped the ball uh, yesterday and just did not record the episode. So uh, the, the boys are kind enough to, to come back on the show, despite my mishaps. Um, I actually, yeah. So anyways, we, I messaged them last night and I was like, oh, guys, like you're going to hate me, but I hit, forgot to hit record. And like, okay, like didn't, didn't hear back because these guys are on a different time zone and they got a message this morning at like 6.45 a.m. being like, hey, we can jump on at 7.30 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, so I kind of rolled out of bed. I actually was at a scotch tasting event last night, so I'm pretty haggard. I haven't had a coffee yet either, but uh, we're going to grind through this. The loony hour must go on. So Rich, what's the... Wait, was it a, a, a scotch tasting or a scotch drinking? Which one was it? Oh, God, everything. Both. I, I just, uh, they invited me over to, I'm getting into scotches. So I got like some fancy glasses for Christmas and, and uh, these guys are like, okay, well, we've got like the finest collection of these Scottish scotches. So you got to come over and, and do this tasting. So we went through like six or seven different tasters but you know big big pretty big pours so uh, i don't know i don't know scotch at all i'm really good with wine and um you know i get funnier the more wine i try but i'm not a a, a, i'm not a scotch guy what about you rich what what i know i know where you are rich in portugal there's there's uh some interesting wines over there right yeah it's beautiful beautiful wines duro valley i think is what it's called i'm not really any if it's it's alcoholic and in liquid form i'm usually quite a big fan of it um as long as it's not too sweet um but yeah there's some beautiful um there's some beautiful wine in the duro valley um even though i'm port my parents are portuguese i really cannot stand port which i think makes me like i I think might be banned thankfully not too many portuguese people listen to this podcast i don't think but um, we have this beautiful, beautiful wine here, and it's so cheap. I think Canadians don't understand how cheap alcohol is outside of Canada. So I just want a oh. public service announcement. Um, everywhere in the world, alcohol is far, far, far less expensive, um, and it's purely a function of taxes that our government feels necess- uh, necessary to levy onto the good people of Canada. And it is just so, so cheap. But what I, One of my favorite things in Portugal is something called a mini and um it's a basically a, a glass bottle of beer with 200 um, ml 200 milliliters and it's called a mini and there's like sagres which is let's give them a free plug and another company called Superbock, and they're just tiny tiny little beers and that's my favorite way to drink beer and you can just ha- have one or the other and the reason they're so lovely in, a, in the iberian peninsula is because it's so hot in the summer 40 degrees 
sweltering heat and you just you can drink these tiny little beers and you have 20 of them and they stay really cool and fresh and they're one lovely 200 mils that's like one sip <laughs> one, one sip for keith yeah i think we call them uh personality boosters yeah <laughs> i have a story um, I, have a, I have a story okay yeah yeah go ahead yeah yeah so you know we talk about taxes because you know we're in canada and we get we get taxed on a few things every now and then uh, but during my days offshore in Bermuda, and this ties in what Rich said about, you know, um, you know, things are cheaper outside of, of Canada for taxes. So the, 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 the tax on a bottle of wine in Bermuda is $2 per bottle. It might be a bit different today, but back when I was there, that's what it was. So it didn't, it wasn't, again, the duty wasn't on the, the value of the bottle. It was per oh, bottle. Cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I say it was a, a $10 USD bottle of wine in Bermuda. Uh, up here in Canada, I'm pricing it like $25 Canadian. There's some FX involved a bit, but uh, it's a, again, it's a huge difference. So when you do, you know, everyone here, we all travel outside of Canada where we used to anyway. Um, you know, that's why it is because of the taxes with it. But let's go, Steve. What are we, I got to remember all those stories I told yesterday when we did it. And Rich had a yeah. real funny. <laughs> Rich had a good tried, joke. Rich tried to tell a funny joke, but in the end, it was, it was a face, face plant. I have, a, I, have a, I have a story that I forgot to tell you guys yesterday. And I think you'll appreciate it today, which is I, um, when Mike's cousin here, he's like, uh, he's pretty, he's a cool kid on the block here. I don't know where he, he gets it from. I guess I didn't hit that tree that branch on the falling down the family tree. But anyway, he's like one of the cool kids on the block here and he goes biking with his little group and, they, and they're all very intense uh, mountain bikers. And this area is known for it. It's amazing. It's rural. It's like a nature reserve and brilliant, brilliant sort of cross country mountain biking here. So I would recommend you guys come. And we went out one day and then there's this cave and they like said, Hey, we want to show you, you know, they're trying to show the, the new kid, uh, some of the local kind of um, fair and there's this brilliant sort of um, giant boulder and you can crawl from on from on the ground. You crawl through up and through. Imagine like a vertical sort of pipe through the boulder up onto the top. And I was like keen for it. So, I, you know, I jump off the bike after, you know, two hours of biking, climb up. The next evening, I start scratching myself ever so slightly. And 24 hours later, I'm full-blown hives. I got like poison ivy and I still haven't recovered. I have like full, I, I've been, I stayed up, stayed up all night, two nights ago, scratching myself to oblivion and i have a rash all the way down my side and on my arms so there you go there's my there's my portugal story Steve. Sound, sounds about as bad as my hangover so the uh the loony hour is really grinding through uh for yeah. our, our our loyal yeah. audience that's here. right that's right um but but speaking so, of so let's let's stop the suffering and just start talking about <laughs> yeah exactly we we'll get it we're gonna get into the markets now thanks for bearing with us here um yeah no i wanted to open it up uh, just on the Canadian housing front, um, we we're kind of getting some of the year-end numbers, and uh, we'll get the national data January fifteenth. So we'll be able to put the, all the pieces together. But you know, basically, I think as everybody's probably well aware, like Vancouver and Toronto are ultimately the two most important housing markets in Canada, at least in terms of like the size of those two markets. And so, if we look at uh, the Greater Toronto area, uh, they just came in reported that uh, 2021 was the largest, uh, most number of sales ever on record, uh, surpassing their previous record high that was set in 2016. 
anyone was living in the GTA uh, 2016, you'll remember how much of a crazy frenzy it was back then. Um, so yeah, we, they, Toronto surpassed those numbers this year. Uh, right now there's 0.5, 0.5 months of inventory for sale across the entire GTA market. Uh, there's 3,200 3, homes for sale as of the end of December, uh, all time record lows. Um, it just, unbelievable uh what's happening there like i thought like the vancouver housing market was bad um but seeing the numbers in the gta like it's like uh i mean pain for for any home buyer uh if you go into the vancouver housing market obviously where i am here same sort of thing we we set a new record high in 2021 for for annual home sales uh surpassing the high that was set in 2015 uh, and so if anyone again, remembers 2015 in, in Vancouver, we were kind of caught up in all this controversy. There was, it was really a market that was driven by, uh, foreign capital flows. Like we had, a huge, I think China had record capital outflows that year. <clears throat> and a lot of it found its way into global property markets, Vancouver being one of them. Um, and so we had, you know, just a lot of outrage, euphoria, um, money laundering scandals, all this stuff. And so we, we surpassed that this year, basically all on local, I would say mostly local money this time. We're currently sitting at uh, just under 5,000 listings for sale, which is again, an all-time record low. So long story short is we're kind of setting up now uh, to start the year. We're starting 2022 on, a, on an all-time record low base of, of inventory. And so I think it's going to be very difficult um, for prospective home buyers, at least over the next two to three, four months. Um, and I think we're setting up, we're going to get into the show here. Assuming liquidity conditions stay the same, we're setting up for another move higher in home prices. Like it is what it is. Like at the end of the day, if you've got record low inventory, and you still have, I would say, strong demand. I don't think you're going to surpass 2021 record volumes, but you're going to have a very strong housing market unless financial conditions change, which I think I want to touch on uh, with you guys today. Because Keith, uh, I know you're following, you know, those those markets a lot closer, and we had some news from the Fed. So I don't know if you want to take it away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think everyone needs to appreciate that the price of everything in the world and when it's uh, you have price discovery is when supply meets demand so it doesn't matter what you're selling if it's a car or a house or a stock or a bond it, it's always at that point so i mean the regulators in canada they can try to fiddle around all they want with you know how much you need to put down on, on a house or you know who can qualify and maybe taxes on on the edges as, as long as supply is tight on it it's it's going to be pretty tough to uh you know to correct this so uh that's what we're off to uh so somewhat it's so what i want to talk about it you know it, it it does tie into this uh because la when we did our year end Looney show, we talked about, you know, two events that we each saw with a high probability or low probability of happening in, in 21. And uh, the high probability event that I talked about was that we're likely going to see a, a crisis re-escalate in the emerging market world. And the reason for that is because the Federal Reserve will be raising rates, they would start, you know, they would be tightening their balance sheet and, and so forth. All the central banks would start to do it. And, and that just 
draws liquidity and capital out of those markets into the US, which affects the bond market and credit spreads and, and currencies, which will then filter over and hit the Canadian housing market in terms of the price of mortgages and stuff. Well, this week in the US, uh, if anyone is following it or not, and it is affecting all bond markets around the world, uh, the, the bond market has been absolutely decimated. So we've had probably a three and a half percent move down over the last four to five days in the 10 year market in the US. Uh, you know, as we talked about yesterday, remember yesterday's loony hour, anyone? It's gone. I just wanted to chat with you guys it's again. Gone. I know. There she, remember I said this? There she was, gone. But that one is gone. <laughs> <laughs> but that move, and to put it into perspective, uh, like a, a three to three and a half move percent down in, in the bond market, you know, I said that's the same of, a, of about, say, a 15% down down day in the stock market. So just say the stock market went down 5% three days in a row. And just as you think, okay, we're gonna recover here, it's time to go back in, boom, it's down another 2%. That's what's been happening in, in the treasury market right now. And um, the main trigger point for this was back at the Federal Reserve's meeting in December. They just released the minutes there a few days ago. And in those minutes, uh, it came out that the committee, so the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee for the Fed, that's when they said, you know what, we think we're going to raise rates faster than the market is expecting. And we might actually uh, inc um, reduce the pace of, uh, of QE faster than what the market is expecting. And, and that's what's triggered the, the sell-off in the U.S. Treasury bond market. Again, th this is really big news. And... Um, you might hear me every now and then I'll, I'll say, you know, as an investment manager, we'll have our view on things and then you wake up every morning and you're always looking for clues to help you change your mind on something. Because it's, you know, Rich talks about this quite a bit as well. It, it's, it's really hard to change your mind as an investment manager. But if you are able to do that, you know, you don't have tunnel vision, then wow, there's some really great opportunities coming up. So we're looking every day for reason to change your mind, why the emerging market, uh, economies will not experience a stressful event coming up. And what happened this week, it wasn't reason or data to help us change our mind. It was help us just to further reaffirm our conviction with this. So th this is a big move. And I, I just want to just share with you, uh, this was an article I saw this morning. Um, so this, this is the title. Sleepless bond traders faced worst start to a year in decades. Right? That's that. a pretty, yeah, I know it's pretty good. So just, just bear with me here. So it's, this is a Bloomberg story. Uh, it starts off with like many on wall street, um, you know, such and such was hoping for a quiet start to the year. Now, if you guys ever met bond bond managers before they talking about you, every bond manager can be a bit of a snoozer, right? And, you know, unless they're drinking Portuguese wine or nice Vancouver whiskey or something, it, it's a, it's a dull market. Anyway, this, this article starts off by saying, you know, this bond uh, trader was expecting a quiet start to the year. Instead, the interest rate chief at TD Securities was left reeling as a major treasury sell-off rocked global markets, thanks to hawkish signals from the Federal Reserve. And then it goes on a bit more, and it says, um, this move in the last four days was the steepest New Year increase in almost two decades. So the last time we had a move this big, was back in 2003, 
and 1982. So you, I don't even think you guys were in high school in 82, were you? Rich no, is, was, Rich is always in high school. We can see that. I was still a, a, a glimmer in my father's eye. Yeah, you were. <laughs> so, but to let you know, right? Because, you know, the big thing with the bond market, and this affects everything. Interest rates peaked in 1982. So, you know, decades ago, looking at, you know, 40 plus years ago. And they've been going down and down ever since. And when you have interest rates going down, everything good happens in the world. So no one is prepared for, you know, this kind of spike that's happening. So, so let's continue here with, with this article. Uh, so with the steepest uh, increase in, in yields in two years, spur a disruptive route across assets of all stripes, from high-flying tech stocks to cryptocurrencies. So again, what people need to realize is that a lot of bonds, sorry, a lot of strategies in the investment world, like especially in the hedge fund world, and with big institutional money, you're using the tenure as a barometer, rather put on risk or take off risk or to hedge risk. And so everything is, is correlated here. Uh, so they go on to say, uh, so again, this is this, um, the, this is the head of TD Securities through interest rate person. Uh, I'm already a bit sleep deprived, which is pretty funny for a bond person, I think, because they usually sleep pretty well. Uh, says, I've had to juggle work and family life, and now I have to juggle interest rates going up. This is really ruining my year. <laughs> Get this guy a raise. Jesus. It's, uh, it's a tough one. But again, I just want to demonstrate how big of a move it was. And it's still, like even now this morning, it's moving again. And uh, like this, this is readjusting everything. So this is where we are with it. We can go more into the article later. Well, yeah, let's, uh, I want Rich to, to chime in here in a sec. Cause I know Rich, he's got a little, probably a little bit of pushback, but um, <clears throat> just to quickly touch on it before we jump over to Rich here. Um, we again briefly talked on it yesterday, but uh, the, you know, the impacts of that, obviously <clears throat> we just talked about housing, you know, obviously it, it prices mortgage rates, right? I mean, that's the, single largest variable to, I would say, demand on the housing market. I mean, if, you know, mortgage rates were north of three and a half, four percent 4%, I mean, we certainly wouldn't have saw record uh, home sales last year. So, um, Keith, you know, some, there's going to be some uh, banks, they're going to start to be a little, maybe a little bit more cautious, potentially, uh, potentially, Buying, um, the biggest thing is, okay, risk, risk appetite, right? Like, okay, how many exceptions do we want to make for these loans? Uh, does the, you know, risk department start tightening up a little bit, for example, just because they feel the environment is a little bit shaky. Uh, the one thing that I think is probably most obvious that we might see if the banks decide to rein in their risk appetite for lending and in the housing market uh, will be your discount rate on your variable mortgage. So for example, right now, uh, you know, your prime rate is 2.45. There's always a discount on that. So 2.4, like right now, your variable rate is about 1.3%. So it's prime minus, you know, 1.2% or whatever it is. So what they'll do is they'll go, oh, well, the lending environment doesn't look, you know, the financial market doesn't look as appetizing. We want to rein in our risk. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that variable rate spread from prime minus 1.2 to let's just go prime minus 0.5. And so now your variable rate has gone from 1.3 to 1.95 or something along those lines. So anyways, that's just a little brief 
uh, example for our, our listeners and how that works. But Rich, I know you uh, are dying to give a little bit of pushback here. Uh, what well, are your no, thoughts I mean, right now? So it's so I think you know I think uh, Keith's maybe have softened his stance on growth and kind of accentuated his his market stance, and I think that that's probably you know closer to how I feel. I think. Um, I just wanted to sort of highlight um, the, the kind of the key macro data points, maybe that people may or may not be aware of. Um, today was like sort of very big import. I mean, it was kind of fun. I mean, like an extra sort of day of macro data and, and the key um, Canadian data point um, today was the employment rate. I mean, we're not going to just parrot all the stuff, but I mean, unemployment rate fell, um, which, you know, continues to fall, which sort of should be expected as, as, as the, the economy sort of slowly but surely heals. Although let's always remember that a lot of this data is usually one month sort of behind. Um, and so you don't, we don't really have the fallout from the Omnicrom, you know, like, you know, um, hyperventilating lockdowns um, and that, that we'll, we'll be seeing over the next sort of, uh, let's say four weeks going forward. Um, but, you know, it, it's sort of good news. Canada added 50,000 jobs or plus the unemployment rate fell, et cetera, the participation rate was steady. And so that that's so that's pretty good. Um, I think the market is sort of being so counter sort of the so one thing that might take a little bit of a sort of piss and vinegar out of the, the, the spike in the 10 in 10 year, which we've seen, I think we're up to 177. Um, 1.77 on the 10 year as far as you know, maybe um, I'm 15 minutes late, I don't have live prices, I can't afford it like Keith. But you know, um, 15 minutes ago, the, the one, 10 year was it 177.44. Okay. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so what, one, th- one thing is really important that came out in the US, and of course, it'll affect the Canadian economy too, which was the non-farm payrolls. Now, I mean, a lot is expected. There was like, a, it was, you know, it came in under expectations. Um, I tried to, after, a, immediately after a recession, I think the expectations and um, the, the results, I think are always kind of difficult to like, um, to square. I think that either they overshoot or undershoot quite a bit. I think that for me, the takeaway um, from the payroll data was just that we had they added 200,000 um, jobs, which is a steady number. And then the, the previous months were revised significantly upwards. Um, and I think that that's really important. And then also important were some key sectors. Um, you know, the US, for the U.S., um, the coronavirus is over. Um, uh, not, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, the key, the, the sectors that added the most jobs in America over December were leisure and hospitality, um, adding you know, 50,000 jobs. So, so clearly the direction of travel is one way. Um, and, you know, you haven't had the same reaction to the Omicron, despite the cases sm- smashing through. So I think that there was some really positive news there. Also, for me, another really positive thing for the U.S. employment data was the participation rates. Um, that was really good. Um, they, I think they went down slightly, sorry, up slightly, excuse me. Um, and then the other thing was what I look at a lot is um, just the, the aggregate labor force. So, so aggregate labor force. So who is participating in the, in, the, um, in the labor market? Either you're employed or you're not employed, but that together makes up the labor force. And what we've seen, which is incredible, is there's still 5 million people outside of what would normally be the labor force. And how do you calculate that? Well, before the, you know, before the, um, the pandemic, there was about 100 million, there's 90, 90 million, 95 million people basically in the labor, for, uh, not in the labor force. So I'm going to say that again slowly. So there was 95 million people not in the labor force. And then that number basically jumped. And you can see it's basically everyone over the age of 55. 
and we're going to, I'm going to write about a note about this over the coming weeks, um, which I'll, and I'll have you to, to like delve into it more as we go. Basically anyone over the age of 55 has had a massive, massive boost to their net worth. Their house prices are up massively. Their stock market is up and they've basically just been like, okay, thank you. And I'm taking my chicks off the table and seemingly they have retired early. And um, so we've discussed, we've like touched on this a little bit, but I just think that's a really, really interesting phenomenon that will affect sort of the labor market going forward. And not um, unrelated is that wage growth, you're seeing wage growth just continue to rise in Canada, um, in the US. It's still um, pretty much below inflation. So negative in real terms. Yeah, I was going to say, because can- Canada's wage inflation was, what's the rate, latest reading today it was like 2.7 or something? Yeah, it's, it's a bit tricky, right? Because the way that they do that is they sample, they sample data. And so you can, so one of the things we saw during the pandemic, which is, it kind of highlights why you always have to be a little bit delicate with this data and, and, and at certain points, especially points of severe um, dislocation. So the wage data actually spiked to six or seven or eight. And okay. you're like, that doesn't make sense. Why is weight nominal wage growth spiking to six or seven, eight? Well, the reality is if you're the, one of the reasons the lockdown is the lockdowns are so bad is that it affects low skilled service sector stuff. And, and it, you basically, if you're white collar, you don't get affected at all. And so the sampling, you know what I mean? If you've got a hundred people and the bottom 10 people who work at, let's say the bars and restaurants all get fired, then technically your wage, the aggregate average wage pops up. But has you, do you, have you had real wage growth? No, the number, the wages of the people you are counting have increased. And so you can see immediately after all those lower end service sector employees got hired back, um, the wage, wage growth, so to speak, plummeted really right back down and so you were still sort of feeling do you know what i mean and so you you know when you look at you know when when you're looking at an earthquake there's a sort of a reverberation of that kind of dislocation i still were i think we're still in the depths of that and i don't wouldn't take too much stock in any of the wage growth until it sort of shakes itself out but yeah it is going in the right direction is that is that fair i think is that a fair a lot of volatility basically right you're saying is that the lockdowns are causing uh you know these low end or entry level yeah. employees to basically get axed. Yeah. And so that makes the wages yeah. ultimately look higher on a, on a, on a nominal exactly. basis. And it happened. Um, if you look at the, if you, so one last thing, if you, ha- if you look at the part-time breakdown versus the full-time breakdown in Canada, you know, part-time jobs fell by 70,000 and full-time employment went up by, sorry, someone's honking outside. I don't know if you guys can hear that, but um, full-time employment, went up by 122,000. You know what I'm saying? So you, you, you have, there's going to be a continued amount of dislocation, but anyway, sorry. You, so, you yeah. Ahead. Okay. Uh, I mean, I actually had a question and, and this might be for both of you, but maybe I'll uh, serve this one up to the Tom Brady here uh, of macro first, but oh God, <laughs> how, how much of a, how much emphasis do you put on all these like vaccine mandates where they're actually coming, coming up, into play soon like i know uh, some friends here locally in vancouver that work for very large corporations that um are having to i mean essentially lay off a good chunk of their staff because they're not double vaccinated like i'm talking like big 
companies that have these vaccine mandates in Vancouver. I know it's happening in the U.S. as well. So I think, yeah, so the vaccine, uh, vaccinating people or giving um, employing people based on a medical decision is wholly unethical and I think a horrific thing to do. However, I and so I'm not going to I'm not going to pull any punches on that. So forgive me, boys, if we get banned. But I think it's outrageous. First of all, I'm double vax and I've got a booster. And I think anybody who doesn't get vaccinated is sort of an idiot. However, for a private corporation to say that your medical your employment is based on a discrete medical condition, uh, a, a decision um, is, I think, frankly, outrageous. However, I also think that the stories with respect to that are also massively over egged. I think they make for great headlines, and I don't think necessarily it's true. If you look at the total vaccination rate for Canada, it's 80%. And if you look at by age, it's skewed towards people who are over the age. So meaning, meaning so if you're like 90, you're like 100% vaccinated. If you're 80, you're like 95. You know what I mean? So the, the people who are the least likely to be vaccinated are actually very, very young. So I highly doubt that someone who's in a really, really big time position, who's making lots of money, who, you know what I mean? Who's working for these I've big got, corporates. I've got a, I've got a family okay, member. Go. I've got yeah. a family member that uh, works for one of the municipalities okay. um, here. Yeah. And they've got this vaccine mandate that's coming up, I think, in the next week or two. And so he, he's telling me that they, they're apparently like 20, 20% of their workforce is gone that, yeah, yeah that's that's the, that's what's floating i mean this is yeah this is like a very close family member this is not like a long no i understand time. i understand so i mean i just um i mean listen i, I don't i don't know I, I i have a personal take on that that clouds my decision making on it um i just i i just can tell you what the aggregate number is it's 80 percent. so and we know what the what they know it's vaccinations are by age and we know that it's the younger people who are less likely to be vaccinated, not the older people. Do you know what I mean? And so it's just there's the math that sort of doesn't square with the narrative a little bit. What about but like I, uh, did they did they ever come to a decision with these like like the truckers like in the U.S. and stuff like because they were like, hey, the truckers got to get vaccinated and like and then everyone's worried I mean, about the supply chain. <laughs> I, I have a sneaking suspicion that if you run a trucking company, you will print out as many fake vaccination cards as you possibly can because job openings and trucking company are absolutely desperate, desperate for that kind of, those kind of employment. Um, you know, obviously I was just, I'm just shooting, you know, shooting that, shit here so a little bit one, with respect yeah. to that, but I just know that like the jolt, like the vacancy rates in Canada, in the, in the U S in the UK and the loads of developed markets are extremely high and they're extremely high for jobs that are like the semi-skilled labor, which is the trucking, which is, you know, um, you know, bricklayers and blah, blah. And, and people are desperate, desperate to have those employees. So I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that when the rubber meets the road, I think that employee employers will almost certainly change tact or close a blind eye. Now the government employees, that's maybe a different story. I don't know, Keith, if you have a view on that, I know we shouldn't spend too, too much time on Corona, but that's a really good question. I know my only comment with, with all that is, um, you know, again, this is a broad comment. I think most Canadians are a little naive as to the way the world really works. Um, there's a lot of support for whatever authorities will, will tell them and, and things like that. But the comment that you just made, Rich, and uh, and that's what I mean by saying this, you say, you know, if you're running a big trucking company, you have the, you know, the fake 
vaccination cards, whatever they're called. You know, some people are hearing that, like their jaws dropping, saying, my God, that would never happen. And guys, the world outside of Canada, it works like that. That's just the way things get done. So uh, yeah, you know, like, again, if you're running a, a P&L or, you know, profit or loss entity company and you know you got to get that stuff moving like the ports for example are incredibly like they're linked to the truckers right so um yeah but you know it, it you know it kind of is what it is but then the naive canadians are yeah. complaining about inflation it's like well it's all it was kind of interesting like my my mom went to the uh the, the grocery store the other day to, to get something and, and the shelves were kind of empty whatever she was looking for and, um, you know, so she asked one of the uh, employees or said, like, do you just not have stuff? Like, what, what's happening? And the employee told her, she said, no, no, we just don't have enough staff to come in to, to stock the shelves. So, uh, like, so whereas, like, the, the first phase of the pandemic where everything shut down, you just, there was enough stuff to go around. Now we're starting to see another out of the fact where, Sometimes there is enough stuff, but you just don't have people to put that stuff out on the shelves. And, you know, I don't know how we fix this, guys, but. Well, we stopped, you stopped paying people it. to stay home would be the first step in that equation. I mean, it's happening. Um, it's happening slowly, but surely. But, you know, I, I, in where I'm where I am, just like, sorry, mini tangent on that labor market thing, which I think is important for Canadians to understand. Um, you know, one of. I live in a really, I'm living, excuse me, in a quite a rural community. It's not very rich. Um, it's a natural resource driven, whether it's farming, um, whether it's, you know, olive oil pressing, whether it's is this, um, rich. Is textiles. this, are you yep. describing, are you describing the South and the Halifax? Yeah, Portugal. <laughs> no. Portugal, but one of the, jo- one of the big jobs here uh, for people who are not particularly educated, but, you know, are able-bodied and willing to work is, um, is a quarry. And this area is known for extremely, extremely high-end um, granite marble. It gets shipped to, you know, China is a big, obviously big consumer. Um, and there's, no, I mean, they're, they're quite intense and beautiful in a way. You know, it's as if like God came out and took a scalpel out of and cut the little chunk out of, the, out of a mountain. Um, but they cannot get enough men. Uh, it's, it's a male-dominated world, enough men. Um, to work those those quarries and I was speaking to one of the gentlemen who you know, lives at my mother at my aunt's um, house she has got a, got a compound here anyway long story but and he's telling people and you know when you ask him he's like it's 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 unbelievable he's like they need to stop paying people to stay home and so that there's you know there's this idea that you know oh it's because you know there's lots of labor shortages because the wages aren't high enough and that may or may not be true, but it's, there's definitely something to the fact that a lot of people are basically paid to not participate. And you, you can do that for a little while, but to do that for an extended period of time and not, and not to expect systemic negative impacts in how our economy is organized and ultimately, um, yeah, to, 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 to say that it's just a global thing or that there's nothing governments can do about it, I think is wrong. So just to kind of bring that all together, basically. So we're looking at, uh, you know, your, your rich, your outlook on the economy seems to be, tend to be fairly bullish, uh, or at least your, 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 your views on, on growth prospects. 
Uh, we've got this tight labor market. I mean, like, what's the what's the U.S. unemployment rate right now? It's at like three point nine. Like it just it fell um, again the today because un- the uh, yeah, the so it's three point nine. It's quite quite low, but I think that's screwed up because the participation rate um is is skewed, right? Yeah, it it looks good, but whatever. I mean, right. Um, so now it's kind of like okay, we bring this all back full circle. You've got like you know, these headline numbers that look great, you know, unemployment rate at 3.9%. The last time we saw this, I think was what, May, 2018. So, you know, the Fed gets super hawkish. We got to kill inflation. Economy's hot. They're obviously behind the ball again. Uh, so like, what, what's the trajectory here? I mean, Keith, do they just start hiking rates similar to they did in 2018 and they keep going until something breaks like they did in December of 2018 when the stock market craps the bed and, and they have to kind of reverse course. I mean, is the, are we not, are we not going down this exact same path? Yeah, that's exactly where we're going. I mean, they'll, um, they, you know, I, th- I think they, you know, that, the smart people at the central banks, as well as the treasury departments, and then the Finmans, they know they provided too much stimulus. They got to do something about it. And as we talked before, there's a lot of infighting taking place between the guys at the central banks and then the, the guys at the treasury departments. And uh, But they're going to go down this path. So, for example, even this morning, I saw this article. I think now we've had four emerging market countries either raise rates or they're going to start to raise them at their next meeting. And that that's not entirely in response to an inflation. That's in response to what the Fed is doing. So it's remember, the Fed is the driver. They're at the, you know, they're driving the bus. They're at the front of the train all those analogies you can make because they're now going to get more hawkish and more aggressive. Everyone else will have to as well, especially in the emerging market world. So if, if you don't raise rates, all of a sudden it, it becomes less attractive for foreign capital to stay in your country relative to the U S so they will go down this path, Steve, as you said, until, you know, some, something is triggered and, and that's our base case. That that's the got, again. And just, just jump in that. there. There's, there's, yeah, you're, you're not sorry to interrupt. I just want to say it's a point of fact here. There's way more than four. I mean, um, you know, we can just go quickly like um, South Korea raised rates, Russia, Poland, Czech Republic, South Africa raised, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, Chile, Peru. I think one of the things you and I agree on is like the emerging markets are trying to pedal as fast as they can just to keep up. You know what I mean? Sorry. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That, that was an article this morning. Uh, I think oh, it was sorry. referencing like the last few weeks or something like okay, that. Okay. Excuse me. So, sorry. Rich, sorry, what, sorry. Did, yeah. what did yeah. South Korea move? Oh, South Korea. You got me. I have a, I have a table which I can share with people if they subscribe to my service. Um, South Korea has moved. That's cut two months. Has excuse me, raised two months in a row, if I'm not mistaken. Let me just double check that. South Korea has got a very similar uh, household indebtedness uh, ratio as Canada. So just oh, sorry. So. so South Korea raised 25 basis point. Yeah. So in July it was it was 0.5, and now it's one. You know, and yeah. and all of the South, the big, the major Latin American um, countries have started to raise rates. I mean, Keith's right. I mean, they're just they're all trying to run faster to stand still, right? It's and and the treadmill is the U.S. Federal Reserve. Yeah, because, uh, as you'll explain, think, right, they've got a lot of U.S. dollar denominated debt, exactly, and so they can't have yesterday. This, you know, I think in in the what episode is this? Thirteen or twelve? Thirteen. Thirteen. Lucky, 13. Lucky, 13. Lucky, 13. Lucky thirteen. Lucky thirteen. That's why we. That's why I didn't record. 
in, in my mind, it's the 14th episode, so we'll That's always right. go back and forth with this. But from my memory, in the 13th episode, what are we lost at? It's like the lost episode. Maybe we'll discover that you know, years from now. They'll, they'll yank it out oh, of the... Uh, give Zoom a call and ask them to yeah. dig it out. But I remember, uh, you know, it, it was, it was uh, one of us yesterday used the analogy of this big snowball, like in the Charlie Brown. Remember the Charlie Brown? show you guys don't know that right charlie brown yeah UC, i remember linus I remember. linus you know the, pig yeah. pen i'm surprised you guys know that stuff so i thought <laughs> why is the, they have the internet the, on computers now keith <laughs> I, yeah it was different when i was a kid but you know but picture the, you know on, on on the peanuts you know that the, the snowball starting to go down the hill and it starts you know collecting all the lads on the way down and you know, you see Charlie Brown's head in there and Linus is there in the blanket and, you know, Snoopy and everything. So right now with the Fed, that that is this big snowball. It's starting to go down the hill and it's going to start. It's just like picking up, picking them off one at a time until, like, as you said, Steve, like this will keep going till it's just going to hit something and, and fall apart. So it, it's coming, lads. Get ready for it. And when it does, it's going to create a... So again, some really great opportunities here. I mean, like, even, like equities are getting a bit soft here over the last few days. Specifically, you know, tech stocks are, are you know, getting rammed pretty hard because they have a pretty high correlation, you know, with, with interest rates uh, at the long end of the curve. So that's happening. You know, those ARC funds that we talked about, you know, again, like they have to get liquidity by selling, you know, selling the winners, their, their big stocks they have there. So, uh, yeah, so let, let's keep watching the snowball, guys, as we keep going because it's, it's coming out. Yeah. So- Go ahead, Rich. No, sorry, sorry. Go, Steve. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Oh, I was just saying, what's that old analogy, right? It's like, I can't remember. I'm going to botch the wording, but it's like every, every, every bull market, you know, ends when the, because the Fed takes it out back and shoots it in the head. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I mean, yeah, these guys are just, I mean, it seems like they'll probably just go until something breaks, but I think we've, we've been on the show many, many times talking about interest rates, central bank policy. Um, I think, well, no, I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think, I still don't think they're going to get that far. I mean, do you, what do you guys think? I mean, like, is it, is it like two or three hikes from the fed? Is that enough to tip, tip everything over? Like, I, mean, I think Rich, that the big difference now is because before we were talking about, you know, that the, the Bank of Canada said that, you know, they're going to start raising rates and, you know, all, all the bank economists, they, yeah, we're going to start raising rates. But again, I keep coming back to the Fed. Now with this coming out of the Fed, it's guaranteed that they're going to start raising rates. Now it just comes down to how fast will they do it? How aggressive will they do it? And again, the ECB, they're going to come out, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to raise rates as well. In in Euroland, they will not be raising rates. One, one of my friends this morning I was chatting with, uh, so he short the two-year German Bund. So he's getting paid. You know, it has a negative rate on it. So he's getting paid about 40 to 50, so about a half a percent a year to short that bond. You know, you think about it. It's pretty big stuff coming out. But again, like this, this track has changed. It's no longer... You know, they might raise rates. They're going to do it. And as you know, my, my view hasn't changed in Bank of Canada, they'll get two to three in and they'll have to stop. Um, there's just one thing. So for me, um, I think I think where maybe I disagree a little bit is just the fact that rates are so, so policy is so, so easy. And I think it's important that we like contextualize 
um, that even though we like we agree that rate, interest rates are going to rise and we agree that, you know, out in the emerging market world, there's already starting to raise rates. I mean, let's remind ourselves that PCE core inflation in the U.S. is 4.6 percent and the Fed funds shadow rate um, was done by this brilliant uh, economist. I'll, you'll, you'll never very rarely hear me say the, that, but his name is Rue and um, he, he they do this thing called the shadow rate and it's negative one point eight. So this is where I think, you know, not to split hairs, but even though there's some tightening at the margin, like let's be like money is very, very easy and it's very, very cheap. And if you look at the, you know, the senior loan officer survey, whether it's in Canada or whether it's United States, I mean, it's very, very easy to get credit Um, and spreads in the U S are still very, very, very low. So, you know, there's definitely going to be some, I think the frothy stuff, I think Keith and I definitely agree with respect to the tech, all that like crappy tech is going to get hammered because it's basically a long duration asset tied to the interest rate. But there's, um, I think I'd like to highlight for Canadian investors, particularly, you know, um, that because Canada's equity market is so screwed up and unhealthy, it's actually in a position to outperform, um, I think. And because if interest rates go up, banks ten- generally tend to outperform. And I think that there's no respite on the energy squeeze that we're seeing. And the Canadian equity market is heavily skewed towards um, um, energy. So you've got, you know, 60 or whatever, per half of the equity market in Canada is energy and banks. And you're in a situation where you have, I think you have tailwinds for those two sectors. And so I actually think that Canadian, uh, if you're just, you know, if you just hold the Canadian equity index, I mean, you shouldn't, you should hire Keith to run your portfolio. Um, but um, if you just hold the S&P 500, uh, S&P TSX 60, you're, you know, you're probably doing okay. Um, and, you, and you might continue to do okay, which I think is kind of interesting. I just want to add one one more thing here. Um, is this in line with with you know what we're all talking about here today? Um, Canadians need to probably appreciate what's happening at the banks this week. So with this sharp rise in interest rates uh, on the short end as well as the long end of the curve, all the risk departments or the the guys at the banks deciding where they're going to lend and at what price and stuff. It, they've been all sharpening their pencils this week. This has been a significant shift for them. And I would be surprised if you don't see a bump up in mortgage rates. If it's not hasn't happened this morning, it's it's coming out to you on Monday morning when it happens. But again, risk or banks do not like to lose money. They really dislike losing money. And one thing that's interesting, uh, a lot of the banks in, in the U.S. as well as uh, Canada, they raised a lot of money earlier this week. I, th- I, think, I, saw, I think TD was one of the last banks to get a, a pretty big issue and was pushed out on, on Tuesday, you know, just in time, really. Uh, so that they, you know, they do have a lot of capital right now to lend. However, the price that they're going to charge borrowers, it, it is going to go up. So again, I keep going back. You know, Earlier, I was sort of jumping up and down about how this is such a, a big week in the bond world. And some people may be listening to this and say, oh, who cares? I don't buy bonds. It is going to touch you one way or the other because it is affecting all markets. And again, every single banker out there right now in the world, not, not just in Canada, but in the UK and across Europe and in Asia, they're all now repricing what they're going to lend at. So I think yesterday, I think, Steve, you do. Yeah, have it's like a risk, risk on, risk off. Yeah, Go ahead. I mean, they're, 
Yeah, they're going to be, again, they're fine with this. So, um, and I don't follow mortgage rates at all, not, not too closely, but but some of the uh, sort of the indices I can follow, you know, you've seen that ticking up over the last couple of days. And as well, emerging market bond markets have, have come down over the last few days. Uh, high yield credit has come off. Investment grade, not too much, but that's been pretty protective on a relative basis. But again, everyone in the Canadian housing world, um, you know, you're probably going to, if you're on a variable rate, you, you might have a, a higher payment coming up pretty soon. Yeah. Um, important, important distinction on that one. That's a good point. Um, so when the Bank of Canada, typically speaking, if you have a variable rate mortgage at any of the large big five banks, um, typically speaking, their variable, most of their variable rate products today are fixed payment. So even though the Bank of Canada raises rates, let's say three or four times, that shouldn't not increase your monthly payment. What it will do is it will change the amount that of your payment that goes towards principal. So you'll end up paying less on your principal. Now there is, there is like a trigger and I, I can give people maybe a real life example. So I just locked in a variable rate mortgage, a five-year variable at, at uh, RBC Big Bank, uh, 1.2%. Um, so that payment will, it will stay. Yeah. It's so cheap, uh, for five years at that, at that number. Now there's a trigger number. There's a trigger that says that if that sort of variable goes to four point, I think it was four and a half percent that, uh, it would trigger the, the clause in the mortgage would basically would then say, we now have to change your monthly payment. So your monthly payment will in fact increase. So, I mean, do you think the variable goes from one, two to four and a half would require the Bank of Canada to basically raise rates, uh, essentially 400 basis points or something? So, Steve, can I ask you a question? Um, mm -hmm. You know, in the big short where, I mean, if you've never seen uh, the movie or read the book from Michael Lewis, I would really recommend it. Um, he's written a couple of books we've talked about um, on this podcast and, and, um, and, and is there a situation where, so in, in the, the premise is basically, you know, he explains the mortgage um, debt crisis. And in the US, they had the, these variable loan rates that Ninja sunset after two years, oh. and then they spike up, right? So you're paying two year teaser rate for whatever your mortgage is. And then after a certain amount of time, it goes from, let's say, percent to 5% or whatever. Um, does that happen in Canada? Yeah, there's no, there's no such product. Um, so that is a Thank very goodness. good question and good. Uh, yeah, the, the, the lending products in Canada are so much different than the U.S. I think that's a very important distinction, right? Like, I think the, the biggest risk in Canada is like, you know, if you're in the U.S., yeah, okay, they have those adjustable rate mortgages. That's um, what they're called. Thank you. Yes. Um, but in the U.S., you can get a 30-year mortgage today. I think today, like Keith, you sent the chart yesterday. It was like, the rates have actually increased, but they're still like, I think you get at a 30 year rate in the U S at like three and a half percent. And that stays at three and a half percent indefinitely for 30 years, no matter what happens in, in markets. Whereas like the big risk in Canada is like most people, either they go variable and yeah, it's fixed for five years or you go a five year fixed rate mortgage. So the risk is always that in five years, you're, you're up for renewal at whatever the going rate is. Right. So I mean, if bond yields spike higher and, you know, in five years time, they'd have to figure that out, right? I mean, that could be, 
I think it's inevitable at some point, something will happen in these bond markets and there's some sort of reset. So is that a situation where regulators look at it and say, okay, uh, five-year mortgages are no longer at two and a half percent. People that are renewing, they're renewing at four and a half. And this is a crisis. Uh, I would think that they'd have to figure out some sort of policy measure. My guess is the thing on the top of my head, you'd probably look at extending advertisations for people. I mean, what, so one of the reasons why we don't have that market in Canada is because Canadian banks don't have that equivalent market to offset the risk in. So whereas American banks, if they want to send out a 30-year mortgage, fixed rate mortgage to somebody, uh, that bank can lay off that risk immediately. Someone's going to buy it. Uh, the market in Canada, the, the products are not there. The, the market is not big enough. So that's why in Canada, you'll have this 25-year amortization period, but this you know, usually most people go five years at, at the longest on the term rate. So again, it's, important, it's just so for people understand why the Canadian market is different. And the Canadian market survived the 0809 crisis, exactly because we didn't have these arm, you know, mortgages, these adjustable rate mortgages. I mean, that's what saved everyone here. Do, doesn't the UK, uh, the UK is also, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't the UK a similar thing where you can only get like a five to exactly. 10 year length the UK is mostly variable, isn't it, uh, Rich? Mostly. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the idea of you having a two-year fixed rate seems like an oxymoron. Um, but you know, you'll have um, there. There used to be lots of interest-only mortgages. They've sort of phased those out, um, and now they you can do like a ten-year fixed rate. Um, they're trying to push people into that area, uh, but mostly, I would say it's between two and five-year fixed. Um, rate mortgages isn't that like the argument to keith i was listening to a podcast there and uh we, we both like him grant williams I, I can't remember he had one of his guests on but there i think grant was talking about you know rates and grant is i would say you know quite pessimistic or quite skeptical of of the current monetary financial system and he was going on he was explaining and he's like yeah you see you know my, my daughter is like she just took on she just got a big new mortgage in the UK. And he's like, you know, I'm a little bit like nervous for her. Cause like, you know, what if rates go up, we've got inflation and yada, yada, yada. And it's kind of his guess was, I mean, they kind of came to the conclusion that if some sort of crisis were to bubble up, like they would probably do their best to keep sort of the front end of the curve, you know, down, like, you know, central bank, overnight rate you can you can kind of control that but you can't necessarily control the long end and so his view is that okay you know you're you're they basically came to the conclusion that you might actually end up being better off going variable interesting i don't know if you have that same conclusion because like if you think about how much of the world's debt is is how much of the world is is indebted and how much of the world is is predicated on the overnight interest rate that's at least like the one policy metric you could argue that they can kind of control see i think uh i think that's right that you know what it, it is absolutely correct in a normal cycle but you know my this is my view is a, is a bit sharper on, on the edge of the stick you know than some others uh <clears throat> i think if we run into a situation say say it's the uk for example that begins to experience a, a crisis um it's just going to affect everyone everywhere. It, again, it's not going to be a, a UK-centric problem. 
and and that's where you know we are going to see some kind of restructuring at the end of the day and and it's not a bad thing it's not something to be afraid of if this was afraid. like a canadian only risk event then yeah you, you need to be you know be, be, be very concerned here but everyone is going to hit this at the same time and I think I know what the solution might look like, but we got to get to that point first and, and push through it. So um, like for, I, th- I think central bank digital currencies are coming right down the pipe. They're going to compete directly with commercial banks. Uh, there's going to be a lot of things happening that they already have happened and people are just not aware of it. But uh, again, I think this scenario of just the UK or just Australia running into a problem that that ain't going to happen. It, it's going to be all of us at the same time. So, you know, so for, uh, you know, so for grant's daughter in, in the UK with, with her mortgage, um, you know, it's, it's just not going to be her. <laughs> Everyone's going to be, yeah. And no one's going to be able to bail them out or anything like that. Cause we saw that, you know, with, with the Irish that we talked about before, no one's like, for example, if the Canadian banks got into trouble, you know, on, on this weekend, there's no one to bail them out. Like they dwarf Ottawa. It, it, it's impossible for anyone to walk in to bail out the Canadian banking system. Like the IMF can't do it. Like it's just, it's just not even close. So again, everything is just intricately linked together. You know, maybe that's why everyone should just, you know, continue to, you know, play along with the rules and stuff like that. But I, I do happen to believe that, you know, we're going to have some stressful moments coming up. Speaking of a stressful moment, guys, I got to run. I got to leave you two on your own to wrap it up here. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. It's, I, know I don't know what you guys were talking about, you know, like I think, the senior and- guy leaves the play, leaves the playground. Who knows what you two will do? But I, I do apologize. I, I got to jump here. I, I got to uh, have another. I think we'll we'll wrap up the loony hour right there. Um, okay. Because I think we're, Let's do near, it. we're nearing an hour and I, I dropped the ball yesterday. So, uh, Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, episode 13 in the books. We'll see you again. Uh, oh, my one request, uh, as always, at the end of every episode now, uh, all we ask is we're trying to build a, a community here. I think we're continuing to grow. We appreciate your support. All we ask is for our listeners to share this episode with one of their friends. Just copy the link, send it to one of your friends. Let's build the community uh, one by one. So as always, God bless. See you next week.